Welcome, ankle biters. You've stumbled on the far, far, far-fetched fables, the home of tall tales, old chestnuts, fish stories, and other unassorted yarns. We mostly cater to the young'uns here, but you grown-ups can have a listen, too. If you have a mind to, tap on the follow button on your podcast app or find us on the Facebook. In the meantime, turn off the TV, put down the cell phone, get yourself a glass of warm milk, and settle in for some old-time storytelling. Tonight's episode... Chapter 10. Paul Bunyan's Pets. From Paul's wonderful success in training Babe, the great blue ox, it can easily be seen how truly remarkable was the great logger's understanding and liking toward animals. He was exceedingly fond of pets, and throughout his life he had many of them, some of them very strange creatures indeed. Of course, none of them ever crowded Babe from first place in the affections of their master, although there are several other of Paul's pets which have become almost as well known as the great blue ox. There were Jerry and Ginny, the mule team, for instance, which had proven so useful in the manner of transporting the big flapjack griddle from place to place. And then there also had been Willie, the little blue ox. Paul had sorrowed greatly, when the little blue ox had met his dreadful fate, and it was only a little later that he purchased Bessie, the yaller cow, in hopes that the new animal would fill the place left vacant by Willie's sad demise. Bessie was a very wonderful animal, much more useful than Willie had ever been, and she made up for his loss so well that in a very short time Paul had grown remarkably fond of her. She was possessed of numerous good qualities, none of which was more valuable than her remarkable faculty for giving milk. She gave so much milk that it kept seven men busy just skimming the cream from it. It is a sad fact, though, that Paul did not have her very long before he almost caused her to lose her value as a dairy animal. He didn't have fodder enough in camp to feed her as she should have been fed, and so he taught her to graze on pine branches and needles with an occasional feast of baled hay, as Babe had been doing for many years. As a result of her new diet, her milk soon became too strong to be used for food, and so Paul had to discover another use for it. The solution of the problem was very simple. He had all the cream churned into butter, and when the snow and ice melted off the roads in early spring, he kept his logging roads slippery and in good condition by greasing them thickly with Bessie's butter. Thus, after he had secured the yaller cow, he was able to extend the logging season as far into the summer of each year as he wished. Bessie's unburied feeding upon pine needles seemed, after a while, to have an ill effect upon her, and so she began to get thin and scrawny. Her master was greatly worried over her condition, and had Johnny Inkslinger 
try out all his favorite remedies in hopes of arousing a new interest in life within her. All that was done, however, proved futile, until by chance a queer affliction to which she was subject brought about the experiment which cured her. The yaller cow's eyes were very weak, and the bright glare of the snow made her snowblind after she had been turned out of doors for several days. So Paul rigged her up with a pair of grass-green goggles as a protection. One may imagine his surprise when from that time on she began to grow fat and healthy once more. The goggles, besides keeping the brightness of the snow from hurting her eyes, made everything look like grass to her. After Paul fitted her out with also with a pair of snowshoes, she would be turned out every day among the gleaming drifts. There she would wander about contentedly, feeding heartily upon the drifted snow under the impression that it was the sweetest and tenderest of meadow grass. One other pet which Paul Bunyan had, and one which is almost as well known as Babe, was Elmer, the Moose Terrier, a dog so big and strong that he could kill a moose with one shake as easily as a fox terrier kills a rat. Elmer met with a serious accident one night, which came near putting an end to his career. He had slipped into the dark bunkhouse and was making a bed for himself among some old clothes in the corner when Paul heard the slight noise. There's another of those pesky rats, he growled to himself and hurled his axe as hard as he could in the direction of the sound. He was a very sorrowful man indeed when a moment or two later he made a light and saw what he had done. He had hurled his axe at Elmer instead of a rat and the flying blade had hit the dog squarely in the middle, slicing him in half just as nicely as you please. Paul got busy at once trying to save the poor animal's life. He succeeded in getting the two parts joined together again, and sewed up nicely, and so fast did he work, and such a good job did he do, that Elmer recovered. In his great hurry, though, Paul had put the hindquarters on the wrong way so that the dog's hind legs stuck up straight in the air, in just the opposite direction from the front Go. ones. Thus the poor animal had two feet pointing down and two pointing up, no matter on which pair he stood. When the great moose terrier finally recovered, he found it rather difficult to move about with any degree of speed, owing to his new fore-and-aft construction. Paul missed the dog greatly every time he went hunting and finally he called Shot Gunderson to him and gave him some instructions. I want you to go out into the woods and catch a tote road shagamaw for me, he ordered. Bring it back to camp alive without hurting or scaring it in any way, and perhaps we can persuade Elmer to adopt the shagamaw's method of traveling. There was something to Paul's plan, and Shot Gunderson nodded his head in agreement as he set off in his errand. The Tote Road Shagamaw was a very queer animal, he knew. In fact, it was one of the queerest creatures in the woods, and he agreed that its unique peculiarities should make it a most desirable companion for Elmer in his present crippled condition. The Shagamaw, like the injured dog, had his hind and forelegs pointing in different directions also. He had made the most of his disability, however, and had even developed it into a valuable quality. 
Both pair of legs could never be used at the same time. And so, when the tote road shagamaw walked along, it would travel first on the front pair, with the hind ones sticking up behind in the air, and then, when the front legs became tired, it would reverse and travel for a while on its hind pair, while it gave the others a rest. This caused a lot of puzzlement and bewilderment among woodsmen, for the reason that the shagamaw's front feet were those of a bear, and its hind feet were exactly like the hooves of a moose. Thus, when it walked and shifted from one set of legs to the other, moose tracks and bear tracks would very strangely take the place of one another. This was, of course, disgusting and puzzling to the average person. A moose hunter would lose all interest when he suddenly found that the moose he had been trailing had evidently been suddenly devoured by a bear, and a bear hunter would give up the chase in bewilderment when he strangely discovered that what he thought were bear tracks were really moose tracks in the last analysis. <clears throat> As a footnote, Bipodesta delusissimus is the name by which the tote road shagamaw is known to science. This creature was at one time quite plentiful in the woods, but of recent years it has become very scarce. The last one to be seen by a reputable authority was discovered in Maine in the spring of 1901. When seen, the animal was solemnly following a range line through the woods, marking off first an exact quarter mile of bear tracks, and then a quarter mile of... Shot Gunderson, however, was too experienced a hunter to be fooled by such shifting about, and it was not long before he discovered moose hoof prints, which suddenly changed into the tracks of a bear, and he knew at once that he had discovered the path of a tote road shagamaw. When the strange animal had been captured and brought into camp, Paul soon managed to establish it on friendly terms with Elmer. The moose terrier was a very smart dog indeed, and he eyed his new companion with the greatest interest. It was not strange, therefore, that a very short time later, Elmer began to imitate the strange manner in which the shagamaw was accustomed to walking and before many days had passed, he had become very proficient in his new method of getting over the ground. Thus, the moose terrier came through his dreadful accident better off than he had been before, and after he had mastered his new method of traveling, he never grew tired. He could run on his front legs until they become weary, and then turn over and use the other pair while he rested the tired ones. In this manner, keeping himself always fresh even through hours of strenuous running. He soon became a better hunting dog than ever before, for he could outrun anything in the woods, and he never grew tired. It was shortly after Elmer had recovered from his mishap that he one day came dragging into camp one of the strangest creatures that Paul had ever seen. This was a young, half-grown, and remarkably ugly whirling wumpus the only one of its kind that is ever known to have been captured alive. At first, it was of a very amiable disposition and became quite affectionate towards Paul, but as it grew a little older, it gradually began to manifest that inborn hatred toward mankind, which is perhaps the strongest characteristic of this species of animal. The wimpus is a creature of no mean proportions. 
It stands head and shoulders above the size of a tall man, has a gorilla-shaped head, a villainous black face, and a barrel body from which project long, slender arms supporting enormous, heavy hands. Its unique method of obtaining its food when hungry accounts for the fear in which it is held by all who are familiar with its habits. It will station itself upon a trail or tote road, usually just around the bend in some well-traveled path, and there it will stand upon its diminutive and pivot-like hind legs, stretch out its long arms, and begin to whirl like a top. It gradually increases its whirling speed until at last the animal is whirling so fast that it has become invisible, making no more than a slight blur in the air. The motion produces a strange droning sound that seems to come from the trees overhead, and any creature approaching along the trail is totally unaware of the waiting danger. There the whippus stands and whirls, making his queer buzzing hunger call, until finally some unlucky person walks into his unseen presence. The beast's great hands, outstretched and being thrown about with such mighty whirling force, hit the newcomer with a mighty smack and demolish him utterly with instantaneous ease. The poor man is deposited upon the huge paws of the wimpus in the form of a varnish or jelly, and the hungry animal can lick it off at his leisure. Paul's young wimpus did not at first show any dangerous traits, and for a time he was a great favorite among all the men in camp. Then, as he grew a little larger, he began to manifest an inclination toward whirling. But it was natural that he should, sooner or later, give way to his inborn tendencies in that direction, and though his master attempted to break him of the desire, the creature persisted in trying to make a top of himself. Soon he was whirling about camp with a rapidity which endangered the lives of the men, and Paul grew apprehensive as to the advisability of trying further to make a pet out of such a dangerous creature. Finally, the whirling wimpus gave way completely to the ferocious instincts of his kind and spun himself into invisibility right on the main street of the camp. There, sad to state, he jellied and devoured four of the workers who happened to come by within reach of his flailing paws. There's nothing to do but get rid of that animal at once said Paul regretfully, but it certainly is a pity to see all of that tremendous power being lost in whirling. Well, Mr. Bunyan, broke in Johnny Inkslinger, the efficient and capable camp clerk, if I may offer a suggestion, we <clears throat> may be able to get rid of the whirling whippus and at the same time utilize him in creating for the camp something which it has long needed. He went on further to explain, in the greatest detail, the plan he had in mind, and so well did Paul like the idea that he started putting it to work at once. First of all, be it known, the Dakota camp was badly in need of a dependable water supply. The cooks could hardly get enough water for all their kitchen needs. Babe and the other animals of the camp found it difficult to get enough to drink, and in general, the camp was suffering from the lack of a big central supply of water. It was with this pressing need that Johnny Inkslinger's suggestion had to do. 
Paul ordered Ole, the smith, to make for him an auger, a tremendous, big, boring bit of a queer, stubby design. When at last the new auger was completed, Paul carried it out to the summit of a high sand hill near camp, leading the whirling wimpus shambling along behind him. Most of the men of the camp had learned that something interesting was about to take place, and they crowded around at a safe distance to see what was going on. They watched Paul place the new auger in a slight depression in the ground so that the point was firmly started downwards. They grinned expectantly when he next induced the wimpist to take his hind feet upon special footrests that had been prepared and quickly and firmly lashed the beast to the auger bit. Then, with some apprehension as to the dependability of the bonds that held the animal, they quickly withdrew beyond the range of the wimpus's long arms and watched the creature's frantic struggles to release itself. Unable to free himself, the beast began to howl with rage, and he kept growing angrier and angrier until there seemed no bounds for his outburst. Then, all at once, he thrust his long arms out sideways and began to whirl. Faster and faster he went, and faster and faster did his whirling make the sharp auger bit at his feet drive down into the earth, so that within a moment or two, the terrible creature had disappeared entirely. All that was left was a great gaping round hole straight down into the ground from top of the hill and from which there poured a stream of fresh dirt and sand like ashes from a volcano. Yompin Yemini, yelled the big Swede in an excess of emotion. He's been gone clean through to China, sure. And indeed, the Swede may have been right. For a while, the new well which the whirling wimpus had bored was filled with water and furnished the camp with all that was needed. This well was so deep that it took all day for the buckets to fall to the water and a week to haul them back up again. And it was so broad that hundreds of buckets could be run at once without getting into the way of one another. It was not very long, however, until the water in the new well began to fail and finally it disappeared altogether. Everyone figured that the Wumpus had just kept right on boring his way through the earth until he finally pushed himself out, feet first, into China on the other side of the world, and that the water from the well flowed out in the same direction. Of course, after it went dry, the well was abandoned and no further care was taken of it. As the years went by, the soil and sand blew away from around it, so that today there is about 150 feet of it sticking up into the air, making a striking landmark. There's something you don't see every day. It was after his well-proved a failure that Paul Bunyan made Lake Superior as a watering place for the great blue ox. And from that time on, the big animal always had all he wanted to drink. Actual proof of babe's size can be had by just looking at Lake Superior. For though the great blue ox is no longer in existence, the lake still is. Paul was rather proud of this piece of work, and it is said that always afterward, he wore as a watch charm the shovel with which he had dug the lake. Water from the camp was also carried from Lake Superior after Paul had completed it, for no place else could the little chore boy 
find water deep enough for him to dip the camp bucket in it. As his bucket was always leaking, the water he lost ran together in the hollows of the ground and made most of the 10,000 lakes that today lie in northern Minnesota between Lake Superior and the Red River. The Mississippi River is also said to have risen from this same source, proof of which can be had just by visiting St. Paul or Minneapolis, past which the river may be seen running even today. The little chore boy carried all the water used in camp, and he went back and forth several times each day. He became greatly disgusted with his leaky bucket, but he never got a new one to replace it until after his amusing experience with the big wind. He was going back to camp with a bucket full of water when the big wind came up, and it blew so hard that it was all he could do to keep from being blown away. He kept on his feet, however, and kept tight hold on his bucket of water, so that he finally made his way safely back to camp. It was not until he started to pour the water that he had brought into the tea kettle, though, that he had found out what a remarkable feat he had performed. He had carried the water into camp without spilling a drop of it, in spite of the fact that the big wind had blown so hard that it had blown away every one of the weakened staves of the old bucket from around its contents. Chapter 10. Kind of a funny way to end a chapter, but I don't write them, I just read them. If you're new to this podcast and think you might have missed something, like nine chapters or so, you're in luck. Just scroll on down the podcast page and find all the other chapters of Paul Bunyan and get yourself caught up on Far Far's Farfetch Fables. You'll be glad you did. See you next time, munchkins. Read it again, Far Far.